Good afternoon, everyone. I hope you can hear me all right. Uh, my name is Eugene Kennedy. I'm standing in for Luke Drury, President of the Academy, and it's my uh, privilege on his behalf to welcome you to this uh, uh, lecture on behalf of the Academy and on behalf of the Economic and Social Research Institute. Uh, you'll see from the title of Professor Maury's talk, it's changed, and I think it's a, a very, if you like, a more relevant title to where we are today. As everybody knows, over the last 10, 12 years, Ireland and the third level sector has received big impetus of funding through things like the HES, PRTLI programme, SFI, Enterprise Ireland's HRB, the European Framework. And we've built up a very strong, I think, research platform, which has shown that we're uh, increasing our performance against many metrics uh, worldwide. And allied to that is, of course, particularly in our straightened financial times, a need to actually show the relevance of the research effort to socio-economic impact. And that's very much in the spirit of today's talk. Uh, you know, through SFI, for example, uh, they quantify now the number of academic uh, industry interactions, and they're very, very strong, uh, particularly through the strategic research clusters and their centres for science, engineering, and technology. And, of course, more recently, we've had the Enterprise Ireland Technology Centre. So there's specific efforts to try and put together marriages of industry business partners and academics. And it's how do you most effectively transfer the results of basic research into the, into the marketplace, if you like. There are other initiatives like the National Digital Research Centre, uh, and uh, there's been quite a, an investment by Enterprise Ireland in the universities and the rest of the third-level sector in terms of technology transfer offices. And so a big question is we have how to maximise this, how to optimise it. So it's certainly very interesting to hear the American experience on how we can actually uh, learn from comparisons with, uh, with other places. We have the research prioritization exercise. And just uh, yesterday, I see up on the HEA website, uh, heading, uh, this is a new report from PA, P&A Consulting, which is an independent report uh, sponsored by the HEA. Research investment generates 1.8 billion for the Irish economy. And this is looking at uh, the potential, uh, the, the actual impact may be realized in terms of companies' views as to what's actually come from PRTL investment. So it's very, very timely to have Professor Maury here today, and I'll just uh, finish by giving one or two introductory remarks to him as speaker. Following BA, MA, and PhD degrees in economics from Stanford, and before joining the Hass uh, in a School of Business at Berkeley, uh, he spent time at the Harvard Business School, the National Bureau of Economic Research, and Carnegie Mellon. Uh, he's had many, I think, important roles. One I see as an expert witness in congressional hearings on science and technology policy issues, a member of many National Research Council panels, advisor to Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, various federal agencies and industrial firms. His research interests uh, span impact of technological change on economic growth and employment, management of technological change, and international trade policy and U.S. technology policy. So he's a very, very appropriate speaker this evening. And as I say, I'll invite him now to give his lecture. And just to mention that after his lecture, Francis Rouen, who's director of the Economic and Social Research Institute, will actually handle the question and answer session. So, David. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, I want to thank the uh, ESRI in particular for their uh, invitation and their uh, extraordinary efficiency and hospitality in hosting me uh, for the last uh, day and a half or so. Uh, I'm going to be speaking today about uh, 
really uh, a phenomenon that I think is is always interesting is how governments and and non-governmental non-governmental organizations learn, uh, imitate, and emulate one another in the policy space. This has a long history, uh, really going back well into the 19th century at least. Uh, and I think this this key issue of uh, of uh, university industry interaction and technology transfer is yet another very interesting sphere within which we see this kind of back and forth learning, uh, sometimes selective, sometimes uh, uh, non-existent. Uh, and uh, uh, I'll be talking in, in some detail about the U.S. experience, but I want to use that as a platform to both pose questions and perhaps uh, reach some provocative conclusions that I hope are relevant both to the European context and to, uh, to Ireland uh, uh, in particular, because I am uh, led to believe this is becoming a, a topic of some debate. And obviously, the Irish uh, university system is one that uh, has been uh, uh, you know, widely viewed as, as a very important engine uh, of economic growth and innovation over the last uh, 20, 25 years. So I'm going to briefly review uh, the concept that I think is familiar to many of you of national innovation systems, uh, what they are, and in particular, uh, the role that universities uh, uh, are, are viewed as playing within them, uh, then talk in a more general context about what I think we know or what we uh, like to think we know about uh, uh, the nature of the university industry interface and the channels through which uh, knowledge and technology flow between universities and industry, then, then move to the talking about the, the Bayh-Dole Act of 1980 in the United States and what I refer to as the patent-centric model uh, of uh, university interaction and technology transfer. You know, again, should this be emulated or avoided, or should it be treated as one part, uh, one element of a, of a broader portfolio, just to telegraph my uh, conclusion. Then some very speculative uh, implications of these arguments for the Irish situation. I, I am not an expert on, uh, on the policy uh, landscape in Ireland. I think there are some, some implications, but I invite you to uh, uh, discuss these uh, in our Q&A. So national innovation systems, this is a literature that goes back now quite a few years, really inspired in many respects by the uh, experience of Japanese uh, industrial catch-up and, and innovation uh, uh, and really dates back to the... Uh, uh, the, the early 80s, at least, it, it's, it's, the idea is to try to think of uh, national innovation systems as uh, a, a collection of institutions and policies uh, linked in many ways, and, and the extent of linkage and interaction among these institutions and policies is a key focus of the literature on national innovation systems. And, and these, I tend to define national innovation systems as something that's quite broad, that includes uh, policies both influencing the creation, the commercialization, and importantly, the adoption and deployment of technology. So this is something that in, incorporates R&D funding and performance in both the public and private sectors. Regulatory policy figures very prominently, intellectual property, corporate governance, product safety, uh, corporate finance, and labor markets. All This is a selective list, but all of these are elements of innovation systems, which themselves, as I say, are, are in many cases, nationally embedded uh, complexes of institutions and policies with where history matters, where history constrains, where you go from here, and in many respects is an important influence uh, 
uh, an important influence on policy. And certainly one of the ways that one can characterize the U.S. national innovation system is as something that is not national, that deals with much more than innovation, and is arguably not a system at all in the sense of being a coordinated uh, uh, set of institutions or policies. This is, this is a literature that has become uh, particularly important in influencing policymaking or policy debate, at least, within the OECD and elsewhere on the knowledge-based economy. And universities increasingly are viewed as a central uh, institution within this national innovation systems landscape within uh, industrial and industrializing uh, economies. One of the interesting aspects of, of the national innovation systems literature is it does tend to focus on these systems as national in scope. And I think a very interesting question concerns how they interact uh, among one another within the EU, within the OECD, uh, between industrial and industrializing uh, economies. And there are at least two very broad uh, uh, channels or, or mechanisms of interaction here. One is sort of the, the evolution of these systems as a result of economic forces, and in particular, in the modern economy, uh, forces of globalization, of capital markets, of technology flows, of labor markets, which obviously sets up a certain amount of competitive pressure as well as, as role models. But a, a second important uh, channel of interaction is this so-called purposive uh, channel, which is really policy-driven. And, and, and here I'm talking primarily about public policy, how policymakers, as opposed to corporate strategists, are making uh, uh, decisions that influence the evolution of uh, national innovation systems. Obviously, corporate decisions also matter a great deal. But particularly within the public sphere, I think one of the most interesting characteristics of this policy emulation or two of the most uh, interesting characteristics are first, uh, the tendency for the learning that goes into the uh, emulation to be rather selective. And I, this is one of the things that I want to try to, uh, to highlight in the context of university industry uh, uh, technology transfer policy. So you have kind of this cherry picking uh, by policymakers of what they see as the salient elements. And this is a, something that characterizes U.S. emulation of Japanese technology policy as well as uh, Japanese emulation, more recently, of U.S. technology policy. So you have selective learning and then the processes through which these bits of learning are actually implemented, embedded in policy and institutions within the, the learning or the emulating economy. Both of these are important uh, uh, kind of uh, sources of, of noise uh, or, or uh, 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 divergence uh, in the uh, emulation uh, uh, exercise, I think. And in many respects, the evolution of policy toward university industry collaboration, technology transfer uh, within the OECD exhibits a lot, in my view, exhibits many of these characteristics where you have both selective learning and then implementation of lessons uh, from one institutional environment into a, a very different one. Uh, I think you can see this operating within uh, this, uh, this developing policy, and I'll, I'll, I'll return to that uh, soon. Uh, but now I want to move on to the sort of the 20,000 foot view of uh, uh, how universities interact with and operate within national innovation systems. And here I'm, I'm really focusing, I'm not focusing on the totality of the university's role within the uh, uh, industrial or industrializing societies. I'm really focusing on the the sources through which uh, their economic spillovers uh, operate and uh, and are, in many respects, re realized. Obviously, universities do a great deal of other things as well. But obviously, one of the most important roles that universities play within any uh, innovation system is 
their, uh, their ability to train uh, scientists and engineers, experts of all sorts of, of great importance to a, uh, uh, to a knowledge-based economy. And in particular, universities, I think, uh, have uh, the research university has a particularly uh, significant role in this respect precisely because of the ability of universities, unlike government labs on the one hand or, uh, or teaching colleges on the other, to combine uh, research at the, at the scientific frontier with the training uh, activity, which ideally exposes graduates to frontier knowledge, gives them some familiarity, and also uh, serves as a very important channel for the transfer of knowledge and technology uh, to industry or, or to any non-university recipient or hire of those, uh, of those graduates. The classic characterization of technology transfer is that it is, it is a contact sport, and I think the movement of graduates, the movement of people, is one of the most important channels through which uh, through which this uh, this uh, knowledge moves. Obviously, universities also play a very important role as a source of of knowledge, of scientific, of engineering, uh, of all types of knowledge that is typically vetted through peer review uh, before publication in uh, in journals. Not always perfectly, uh, but nevertheless the. The idea is that the, the universities are at least striving to produce knowledge that is reliable and that is uh, uh, free of uh, uh, bias due to uh, economic forces in particular. Universities also play a very important role as attractors for, uh, for people, for uh, uh, highly skilled individuals. If you look at the uh, development of Taiwan, you look at Japan, look at the uh, People's Republic of China today, uh, South Korea, in all of these uh, uh, economies during their period of uh, economic catch-up, uh, universities have been an, a very important magnet to attract, in many cases, immigrants back to these economies, and in other cases, highly trained individuals uh, from, from other economies. Uh, and I think this, is an, this has been a very important uh, source of contribution. In some cases, and I underscore some, universities, research universities also have been associated with and certainly have contributed to the kinds of regional clusters of high technology firms that we observe in Silicon Valley, in Cambridge, around, uh, uh, around Cambridge, Mass, as well as, well as Cambridge, uh, UK. Uh, we also observe cases in which excellent research universities have failed to spawn these types of uh, clusters. If you think of Cleveland, Ohio, and the excellent uh, Case Western uh, University there, others in the United States, um, and there's a, there's a, I think there, there's a lot of, uh, we still don't, believe it or not, know that much. Uh, we don't have very, very well-informed, rigorously derived knowledge about these mechanisms through which universities spawn or sustain these kinds of agglomerations. And I think these are two very different uh, sources of contribution of universities to uh, high-tech clusters. And really, if you, if you look carefully, for example, at the history of Silicon Valley, uh, you can argue that corporations have played a very significant role as sources of new firms, as sources of, of skilled individuals, and certainly Fairchild Semiconductor in, in, uh, in Silicon Valley arguably was one of the most important uh, spawning grounds 
for new firms that entered the semiconductor industry back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, arguably, their, their role was, was no less important than, uh, than that of Stanford. You can add to Fairchild, you know, Shockley Semiconductor, IBM's very large research facility down in San Jose, Lockheed Missiles in Space, Hewlett-Packard. All of these corporate entities played a very important role in, in the growth of this particular cluster, and you can, you can see this operating elsewhere. So corporate entities are also very important, and, and I think this is, this is just by way of underscoring that the university, Stanford, and Berkeley both played a role in uh, this, uh, this uh, high-tech cluster, but so did these other entities that we typically pay much less attention to. And we've got a lot of different roles here that universities are playing through linkages with other institutions in national innovation systems. And this variety of roles obviously translates into a variety of different kinds of linkages and different kinds of channels through which uh, these university contributions are, are, are realized, if you will. And, and this gets to this question of, of, of channels of interaction. And I think the, the I don't know, I guess if, this is one of three things I'd like you to remember from this talk, is that universities and industry interact through many channels. These channels operate more or less in parallel, and these channels, the operation of one channel influences the operation of other channels. That's sort of one point. The other point is these are bi-directional channels. Influence, knowledge, people are flowing from industry to universities as well as from universities to industry. This is not a one-way street. There are very important interactions going in both directions. Uh, again, going back to Silicon Valley, uh, uh, a, a great story about Shockley Semiconductor, the first semiconductor firm to locate... Uh, Near, in Palo Alto, near Stanford University, founded by William Shockley, winner of the Nobel Prize for his work at Bell Labs in, uh, in inventing uh, uh, the transistor. Shockley Semiconductor located in Palo Alto largely because of uh, William Shockley's uh, relatives who, uh, who lived in Palo Alto, not because of Stanford University. And Frederick Terman, who was then, I believe, the Dean of Engineering, shortly to become provost at Stanford, saw Shockley Semiconductor locating, was certainly was encouraging and, and welcomed them. And one of the first things he did was send one of his brightest assistant professors of engineering, a fellow named James Gibbons, later to become dean of engineering at Stanford. Jim Gibbons was sent to essentially live in the Shockley Semiconductor fabrication facility for two years in order that he could learn about semiconductor physics and fabrication techniques. There was, there was no expertise within the university. So this was a, a case in which uh, Professor Gibbons was essentially exiled to industry to bring the knowledge back in. I mean, this is one of the more vivid examples, but there are many others of the, the bi-directional flow here, of the, the, the knowledge tech, technical as well as scientific flowing into the university and enriching the academic research agenda flowing from industry. Um, so these different channels, to come back to the first bullet, really are are not surprising. Are are, are uh, typically the, the usual suspects in many uh, respects. Obviously, the training channel is very important. Publishing and faculty consulting, both quite important in uh, opening channels of communication and knowledge flow between industry and universities. The formation of new firms, spin-off firms from uh, from uh, universities, patents and licenses. 
uh, also play a very important role. Patenting of university uh, invented intellectual property and its licensure uh, to industry. So I said earlier, these channels interact and affect one another, and that, I think, has some very important implications that I'll try to develop on the next slide. But also, these, the importance of these different channels of interaction vary considerably among different fields of research. And, and probably the, the, another stylized fact that I think is fairly robust based on surveys of, of industry, of R&D managers in industry, is that with the exception of the pharmaceuticals industry and to some extent the chemicals industry, the most important channels of interaction as rated by uh, industrial R&D managers uh, Important, most important channels of interaction with industry. Uh, really, uh, all of, all of these uh, training, publishing, consulting rank well above and well ahead of uh, patenting and licensing. Chemicals, pharmaceuticals is different, and that again is a, an important, I think, stylized fact, an important conclusion that has been insufficiently appreciated, as I'll uh, try to develop shortly, in the evolution of policies within U.S. universities toward uh, technology transfer to industry. The whole world does not look like pharma or biotech, but many, uh, many uh, vice chancellors have, uh, I think, believed that, uh, at least in the initial flush of enthusiasm uh, following the Bayh-Dole Act, thought that it, it might. Um, how do these different channels affect one another? There's actually not that much academic research on this topic, uh, some of the interesting findings, I think, or lack of findings, is we don't actually have that much hard evidence on the significance of university-based technology licensing in new firm formation, university-based spinoffs. Uh, we, we, we see spinoffs on the one hand, we see licensing on the other, but very few scholars have been able to link these two bodies of data sufficiently to better understand the specific role of licensing in new uh, in spin-off formation. And in fact, as I report later, a, a relatively small share of recorded or reported licenses from U.S. universities, in fact, go to new firms. Um, do patenters, do patenting professors also publish within leading research uh, universities in the United States? And here, a, a modest body of work suggests that yes, they do that the relationship between patenting and publishing seems to be a complementary one rather than necessarily a one of substitution. So arguably the publishing channel and the, um, and the patenting channel of interaction, for example, are not, are not mutually inconsistent or, or, or uh, do not necessarily conflict. Gender and patenting, again, an area where some recent research by a colleague of mine, uh, Waverly Ding, uh, suggests that that uh, looking primarily in the biomedical disciplines, uh, women publish no less, women who are senior members of the faculty, but patent far less, suggesting that at least some of this patenting activity and perhaps some of the general faculty entrepreneurial activity that is often associated with it is linked to one's ability to tap into certain networks of either uh, industrial firms or, or venture capitalists and the like. Also, uh, younger faculty, within the biomedical disciplines uh, in, uh, in uh, U.S. research universities now seem to be far more likely and far more interested in uh, patenting and even engaging in entrepreneurial activity at an early stage in their careers than, uh, than their older, uh, older uh, colleagues. 
so that this is this is a limited body of evidence about interaction among different channels, and we and these are almost almost all of these uh, conclusions, which are some of which are uh, barely qualify as conclusions, are based almost entirely on research on the U.S. Uh, system. We know very um, we know much less about these uh, interaction among these channels uh, in other university systems. But I think the fact that you have these multiple channels, the fact that they do interact with one another, that their operation can affect one another, underscores the importance of trying to, to the extent feasible at least, uh, identify some clear policy goals for this broad array of initiatives that are supposed to improve uh, either economic contributions or interaction from universities uh, with, uh, with industry. Because, and, and again, this is something where I think U.S. academic leaders have done a very poor job. They've done a very poor job of articulating priorities, articulating goals for their technology transfer activities. This is at the, at the level of individual universities. And even where they have articulated these goals, these goals have not been communicated to kind of operating staff very clearly nor have these goals been linked to evaluation and criteria by which uh, the performance of individuals, for example, in uh, licensing offices uh, uh, have, been, uh, have been assessed. But you can think of a number of different goals here. You know, university revenues from technology licensing, uh, using uh, university research or, or taking initiatives to leverage uh, public uh, research support with industry research support, national or regional economic development, retention or recruitment of faculty who view entrepreneurial activity as a, an important part of their career, uh, support for local SMEs, and attracting uh, activities, production, uh, R&D activities of, of multinational corporations or other established firms. These are, you know, these are very different goals. I think they, they, they imply in many cases different types of policies, they imply different kinds of trade-offs, in particular among policy. Just, you know, to, to highlight some rather naive trade-offs here, clearly if you're, if your goal as a university is to maximize licensing income, you will tilt, you will, uh, uh, your licensing officers are more likely to be interested in licensing established firms. That's where the money is. Startups, spin-offs, far riskier, far poorer, and therefore, you, this tilts you in a, a certain direction in your licensing uh, activity, assuming that licensing is viewed as an important, uh, an important uh, uh, activity in licensing income. Uh, regional development at, in the, at the broadest level may imply a, re, a relatively unrestrictive or liberal policy toward disseminating not just scientific, but perhaps technical results or perhaps pre-commercial uh, research findings. If you're trying to attract Firms, if you're trying to support firms near the campus, maybe you want to make it easier for them to access certain bits of knowledge. Well, that's quite different from maximizing licensing income. It has very different implications. Expanding the supply of graduates may imply relegating commercialization of research results to a secondary uh, position on your goal of priorities. May or may not, but it has implications for that. Uh, attracting entrepreneurial faculty may mean that you really want to tilt heavily in favor of supporting spin-offs, uh, very low-cost uh, licensing contracts con uh, for the uh, intellectual property of the university. So uh, I think that 
you know, this is a, a, not an exhaustive list of goals. But the point is that there are if different goals imply different types of policy instruments. They imply a willingness to tolerate trade-offs among both goals and policy instruments, and obviously they imply uh, different measures for evaluating uh, performance. And as I say, um, this is sort of a non-lesson from the U.S. Uh, the U.S. experience because I think this is an area where uh, clarity uh, of objectives. Uh, on the part of individual campuses has been lacking, to, to put it mildly, and as a result, you have just uh, quite a mess in terms of what uh, operating staff in licensing offices think they're going to do and, and how, they, uh, how they go about doing it. Let me uh, now move to talk about the U.S. experience, uh, and I'll try to be fairly brief here because I think at least some of this is pretty well known. Uh, the Bayh-Dole Act of 1980, uh, you know, why was it passed? What did it do? The goal was to encourage commercial development of federally funded intellectual property in both universities and, uh, and federal labs. Bayh-Dole really did not legalize something uh, that previously was illegal. What it did were two other very important things. It constituted a, a strong political endorsement uh, of university and federal lab licensing of publicly funded intellectual property, but it was a political endorsement. Uh, it also uh, essentially reduced or removed the role of federal funding agencies, the National Institutes of Health, the Department of Energy, the Department of Defense, their role as overseers of terms of licenses for this intellectual property was dramatically, uh, dramatically reduced. It... Uh, the Bayh-Dole Act also really did not dictate to labs or universities how they should go about managing this licensing activity. It merely said that uh, their, their, the, uh, uh, the results of federally funded research could be patented, could be licensed, terms to be determined by the individual research performer, and the revenues, a portion of the revenues from that activity to be uh, used to support research. The Bayh-Dole Act has... Um, because of its uh, association, I think, with the subsequent uh, uh, you know, new economy boom in the United States and, uh, and other uh, uh, post-1980 developments, been seen as really a, a model for emulation. And here's where we get to uh, the classic uh, process of emulation here. And really throughout the OECD and within a number of uh, industrializing economies, Bayh-Dole has been referred to explicitly as an inspiration or a model uh, for policy uh, uh, affecting the technology transfer activities of, of universities, you know, Japan, Germany, Denmark, France, Canada, Brazil, India. Um, and, and in many cases, some, and by no means all, of the provisions of Bayh-Dole, there aren't that many provisions, have been uh, embodied in this legislation. In other cases, it's been used as an inspiration for a set of policies that look uh, really quite different. For example, the, the, uh, the idea of using uh, public funding to support technology transfer offices, uh, fairly, uh, fairly popular uh, in, in both Sweden and Japan, uh, not something in Bayh-Dole, but, but definitely uh, something that is associated with many of these. Um, and as I say, I think Bayh-Dole is widely cited as a model for these policies, but in my view, the influence of Bayh-Dole on U.S. universities, 
technology transfer activities is probably greatly overstated for a couple of reasons. One is that Baidol in 1980 was one of a series of uh, changes in U.S. policy that affected many aspects of the intellectual property rights system as well as uh, 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 funding uh, of academic research. Uh, and all of these together need to be viewed as contributing to what happens after Baidol with respect to university uh, uh, technology transfer in the United States. Um, but also because the U.S. university system really was one in which there was quite a bit of licensing, collaboration, and other types of interaction with industry uh, going on at a high level, a high level of activity, uh, dating back to the earliest years of the, uh, of the 20th century. I mean, one of the first academic patenters, fairly well known, was uh, Frederick Cottrell of the University of California, Berkeley, who uh, was a, a, a professor in the chemistry department and was a pioneer in anti-pollution technology, uh, technology, believe it or not. He, was, uh, he pioneered uh, electrostatic capture and reduction of particulate uh, pollution based on serious pollution problems in the San Francisco Bay Area. He, was, he was a, a, had a substantial patent portfolio, was very reluctant to allow the University of California to uh, manage the licensing of his patents, and he had some very interesting comments about that. And he went out and endowed the research corporation to uh, to undertake uh, the licensure of his and, and other, policy, uh, other patents. Research corporation subsequently becomes an important third-party manager of uh, university uh, intellectual property uh, during the, the, the 30s, 40s, and 50s in the United States. But the point here is that Cottrell was patenting way back based on collaboration with local industry. Uh, and, and, and he was by no means an isolated case. And, and it really, I think this, this tradition of collaboration, if you will, reflected some key elements of the U.S. higher education system that were internationally uh, unusual, if not unique, and really go back to the, uh, the, the dawn of the system in the United States uh, uh, in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. You know, it was an enormously large system in terms of the number of institutions, the share of the population enrolled. There was no centralized control of, uh, of the policies of individual campuses. It's a very heterogeneous structure, and, and importantly, particularly, was that so much of the sources of political and financial support for the individual elements of this system were local, and therefore there were important and compelling incentives for faculty and administrators to seek out links with local industry for both political and financial reasons. Obviously, competition among campuses and among faculty for resources and prestige also uh, of critical importance in understanding this dynamic and evolution. And and uh, partly building on this, U.S. universities were active patenters well before uh, the Bayh-Dole Act. And in many respects, the growth of U.S. university patenting during the 1970s led to the passage of the Bayh-Dole Act. Uh, that really, the important changes during the 1970s here are, are expansion in university patenting overall, growth in particular in Biomedic, patenting of biomedical uh, discoveries and inventions, growth in the uh, role of private, non-state funded universities, Harvard, Stanford, MIT, in patenting, and in particular universities getting into 
directly into the management of this patenting and licensing. And the involvement of universities, the growing involvement of universities in managing their own patenting and licensing led them to come into conflict with the federal agencies that were overseeing these licensing terms. That really led to some high-powered lobbying by U.S. universities of the U.S. Congress. That was one of the key factors in passing the Bayh-Dole Act, which effectively reduced or removed federal agency oversight of these licensing terms. So the point here is that Bayh-Dole was in many respects an, uh, an effect of growing university patenting of intellectual property rather than, than being seen purely as a catalyst and a dramatic change that led to this explosion in patenting. It certainly led to increased patenting, but it really was triggered, its passage was triggered in important ways by a growth in patenting that predated it. Uh, I think here this is sort of a very quick review of what happens after Bayh-Dole, which is university patenting grows quite significantly within overall U.S. patenting. I think what's a particularly interesting point here is that what you see happening after Bayh-Dole in the U.S. system is a lot of universities become active in patenting who have very little experience in this activity prior to 1980. You have sort of entry by, by relative novices. And what we observe is that they receive relatively low-quality patents, measured either in terms of citations to those patents by other patents or in terms of licensing revenues associated with them. And I think this is important because it underscores the complexities and the challenges of learning to patent uh, and learning to manage a patenting activity. And I think it also highlights the risks of using simple counts of patents to measure performance of technology transfer offices. Because you can file lots of patents, and Lord knows in the U.S. system in particular, you're likely to get most of those patents granted. But many, but patents range widely and wildly in terms of their intrinsic value and importance. And what we observe is that over time, and it has taken a considerable amount of time, universities have learned to be much more selective in patenting. So I think that the, the patent count indicator is a very treacherous one as an evaluative mechanism. So I mentioned earlier, new firms really account for a fairly small share of overall U.S. university licensing throughout the Bayh-Dole period, about 20% overall of, of just the count of licenses. And interestingly, uh, the post-Bayh-Dole era is associated with a gradual decline in the share of university research financed by industry. We're now in 2008, uh, five point, these are National Science Foundation data, 5.1% of overall academic research in the United States is funded by industry. This is below, uh, the 2008 level is below that share in 1957. Not, not, not below it by a great deal, but it's below it by a couple of tenths of a percentage point, which is, again, the, these, these two uh, uh, important trends, patenting and licensing and industry funding, have not really moved in lockstep at all. Some other lessons, I think, from the post-Bayh-Dole experience, again, that are interesting is first that uh, while we, if you talk to U.S. university uh, licensing managers, you hear a lot about revenues, enormous numbers of, uh, cited by way of revenues, and it's almost impossible to find anything about net as opposed to gross revenues associated with licensing. This, this may, not, may or may not be a coincidence uh, because one of the only uh, uh, large-scale licensing operations that has up until 2006 
uh, reported its net income is the University of California. And what's striking here is that, uh, uh, you know, the, the net is a lot smaller than the gross here. I mean, the average annual system-wide revenues for the University of California. So during this period of time, nine large research universities, five medical schools, 99 million a year in, in licensing income. The net, 28 million a year. Legal expenses alone are extremely uh, high in the, uh, uh, the UC licensing operation. Now, like many other aspects of the University of California system, one can argue that they are extremely bureaucratic and inefficient. Nevertheless, these, uh, the, the guess here is that these numbers are not wildly unrepresentative. Uh, and what's also, I think, particularly striking is to compare the 28 million in net licensing revenues with the 200 million in industry-funded research for the UC system during this period of time. So net revenues, which arguably are less, they have fewer strings on them, are nevertheless far, far smaller in magnitude than the, the scale of industry-funded research. And as I think all, most anyone knows who's looked at licensing activity by universities uh, will tell you, revenues, these revenues, gross and net, are dominated by a very small number of patents, those patents typically are biomedical uh, uh, patents. As I said earlier, university administrators in the United States in the post-Bidola era have been very unclear in many cases about their priorities and unrealistic about what can be achieved, particularly unrealistic in thinking that the whole world looks like the biomedical sciences and therefore patents are incredibly valuable and licenses can, can uh, generate a, a substantial revenue flow and have been quite unrealistic about the potential scale of net as opposed to gross revenues. And it is, we don't know because net revenues are not reported on a comprehensive basis, but it's highly likely at least that below the top, certainly below the top 20 uh, U.S. universities in gross licensing revenues, net revenues are almost certainly negative for, for the remaining uh, universities. The other uh, aspect of management that I think is quite interesting in looking at the post-Bidole experience is the enormous lack, the absence of experimentation with different models of managing this activity. Right now, and this is still, I, I, this continues to amaze me given what we know about the costs, every research university that aspires to the name and many that really shouldn't aspire to the name has their own technology transfer office, you know, and, and some of these universities may be generating 10 disclosures a year and, and three or four patents. Well, these these, are, these uh, technology transfer offices are not cheap to run. Uh, they're certainly cheaper if they're very small, but nevertheless, uh, why every university of any size needs its own TTO is beyond me. I mean, there are some reasons why every campus needs to have licensing officers to talk to and cuddle and take care of the faculty. Nevertheless, that's not an argument for having a soup-to-nuts technology transfer office independently existing and sited on your own campus. There's an, it seems to me, not having viewed many experiments in this area, there's enormous scope for experimentation with uh, inter-institutional collaboration, and perhaps for other models entirely of managing this activity. Because this model for managing technology, licensing, and, and patenting is not dictated by the Bayh-Dole Act. 
yet we see it uh, really uniformly. And it's always interesting to see that universities are not experimenting, right? If, if there's a place where we'd like to see experimentation or want to see experimentation, it should be in universities. So the other, uh, I think the other interesting post-Bi-Dole development, and this is really the last 10 or 15 years, is increased criticism, both from government, the U.S. government, and, and importantly, industry of the, the technology transfer policies of U.S. universities. Um, one of the reasons uh, that at least some U.S. universities did not enter into the direct management of patenting and licensing before the 1970s was articulated by Vannevar Bush, who was then uh, vice president uh, at MIT in the 1930s, subsequently, of course, became the... Uh, the architect, if you will, of uh, post-war U.S. science policy, having served in, uh, in uh, wartime as the director of uh, R&D. Bush, during the 30s, expressed great concern over the appearance uh, that uh, MIT would be profiteering uh, from uh, its own intellectual property. And I think some of that concern has flowed through into at least some of the criticism that we see now. And, and in particular, what's interesting is the extent to which the industrial criticism of U.S. university licensing policies has come from information technology firms. And there, are, I think, are several reasons for this, one of the most important of which is that patents are not that important. Individual patents, if you compare pharmaceuticals and IT, you know, the value of a single patent in IT is, is nothing compared to what you observe in, in many of the pharma and, and biomedical fields. And so, you know, a firm like Hewlett-Packard, with a long history predating by Dole of supporting university research, became very vociferous in its criticism of U.S. universities, what they referred to as restrictive policies toward uh, intellectual property, and argued that effectively patenting and licensing activity were becoming a, an impediment to university industry collaboration. And they explicitly, HP explicitly said, you know, we, we need to consider moving more of our research activities to uh, non-U.S. universities because of this. National Institutes of Health uh, have, have argued that universities have been very inconsistent in, in arguing for the indispensability or the, uh, uh, the unimportance of intellectual property uh, rights uh, over research tools, which are very important pieces of intellectual property in the uh, biomedical sphere. And, and late last year, the National Academy of Sciences, you know, the uh, uh, convened a panel to look at, I mean, a panel that, that deliberated for 18 plus months, deliberated at great length because they had a very hard time reaching a consensus, uh, over what best practice should be in university licensing. And they explicitly argued that patenting and licensing practices should not be predicated primarily on revenue maximization. And as in response to this industrial criticism primarily, I think we're seeing some U.S. universities move away to back away slightly from what I've referred to as a patent-centric uh, policy for managing relationships with industry and technology transfer in particular. Uh, you know, this is, I think, based on this recognition that licensing revenues are not that large, and in many cases, net licensing revenues are dwarfed by other uh, potential sources of industrial support. And also based on this realization that the whole world does not look like the biomedical sector. And so I mean, to be very specific, you can point to uh, changes in the organization at both University of California, Berkeley and Stanford 
to more closely emulate the model at MIT where the, the individual and the office in charge of technology licensing now also subsumes responsibility for overall relationships with industry, including, and importantly, uh, including uh, industry-sponsored research. And I think the, the idea here is to try to manage patenting and licensing as part of a broader portfolio of tools in, uh, in pursuit of closer relationships and, better yet, sponsored research funding uh, from industry. Also under polite pressure, uh, most of the time, from, the, uh, from some leading IT firms, uh, there, there was effectively a treaty signed in December of 2005 by Stanford, MIT, UC Berkeley, Georgia Tech, uh, again, committing themselves to a more relaxed approach to managing intellectual property associated with industry-sponsored research in IT in particular, uh, the open collaboration principles. So what does this mean for Ireland? Uh, I say as someone who knows something about the United States and almost nothing about Ireland. Um, I think, again, I probably communicated my biases fairly uh, effectively by now, but I mean, I think that Ireland, a small economy, an open economy within a very large uh, uh, regional economy that we think will remain integrated for the, uh, for the foreseeable future. And clearly the one important role for universities is, is to manage uh, and, and retain research excellence in a world where everything is footloose, right? People, investment, technology. And, and I mean, I, as I say, I'm not an expert on Ireland. I have done some research on the software industry and, and IT in general, and, and certainly the secondary accounts that I've read, you know, Ireland is viewed, uh, Ireland over the last 25 years is seen as, as a remarkable case study of intelligent strategic policy in leveraging universities to do precisely these types of things, build up research strength, attract capital, and attract talent. And it seems to me that, you know, this is a very sensible direction in which to continue to proceed. You know, I think it is arguable about how one strategically focuses on uh, how and what one chooses as strategic foci uh, in trying to build up research excellence. And that's clearly a challenge um, where I have limited expertise, where there are obviously important choices to be made. But it, I, it seems to me that the, uh, the research excellence is really the direction that is most sensible to pursue in, in the context uh, of Ireland, like Hong Kong, like Singapore, like the United States. Um, the scale is different, but the challenges are not, that, uh, are not that different. I think the other, I think, a key issue here, too, is to try to avoid blurring missions and try to avoid creating incentives within the academic sphere that contribute to blurring of missions. And here... I have a hobby horse, uh, one of several that you've probably uh, detected. Uh, this is, again, something that U.S. universities are, a few U U.S. universities are edging toward explicitly rewarding faculty by including uh, as a criterion in professional reviews, promotion reviews and the like, activities like patenting and entrepreneur, entrepreneurial activity. And, it's, and I think the, the risk that I see here in doing so, I mean, there's there's sort of a, there's a high-level mission issue, should we be rewarding faculty explicitly for that. But there's also a much more um, venal, tactical argument against doing this. We reward faculty now for publishing. And guess what? 
We get a lot of publishing. Uh, if you start rewarding them through professional reviews for patenting, guess what? You'll get a lot of patenting. And patenting, unlike publishing, is extremely expensive for universities to manage if they are the assignees of the intellectual property. The filing fees, the litigation associates. So, so this is really an extremely expensive path to consider pursuing in, uh, in, in uh, uh, creating incentives for faculty. I think also that um, uh, faculty conflict of interest policies are very important in trying to preserve the integrity of the education, research, and training missions. Um, most U.S. universities have these in place. I think they attract a lot of grumbling, but it is that is an area where I think, uh, and certainly the, the top-tier research universities have been fairly diligent. I think where they have been much less diligent is in the biomedical area where you know, this is kind of a, an on, uh, there's sort of a, a scandal on low boil that has been going for really the better part of 10 or 15 years where you have faculty, in many cases clinical faculty, associated with clinical trials who are also um, consultants or otherwise financially uh, encumbered with firms. And that, I think, is an extremely dangerous uh, uh set of problems, and it's been an extremely complicated set of problems for U.S. universities to manage, but I think it's extremely important to, to keep trying uh, to, to hammer away on it. It's, it's something like campaign finance reform in the United States. It, you know, it's, it's, people will always get around any set of policies, but you have to keep trying. So the other, I guess, the other set of implications, it seems to me, that are important uh, for um, the Irish context, again, are to see intellectual property, as one tool among a number, reflecting the fact that there are all of these different channels through which universities and industry interact. They're, they're interdependent. And, and again, depending on what you're trying to do, you may want to emphasize one or the other. But also that, you know, the, the, the patenting and licensing tool is just one of many. And, and, uh, and in particular, I think that, you know, Think more clearly and seriously and realistically about the, the feasible scope and scale of licensing revenues, as well as the need to think about net licensing revenues in particular. I, I just because I'm so frustrated at the absence of experimentation, I think some, some experimentation with different models for structuring and managing the technology transfer activities that do take place would be very useful. You know, counts of patents, even counts of licenses since most of those licenses are likely to be zero revenue yielding licenses, may be very inappropriate uh, metrics for evaluation. I think you need to think deeply or at least to, to another level of detail about uh, adjusting these for, some, for quality in some sense. I think other measures that may be valuable in thinking about, and again, this depends critically on your goals for uh, encouraging these kinds of interactions, other measures, industry funding of research within universities, you know, measures of, of the flow of people in both directions between universities and research uh, and industry, those those may capture a little more of what one would like to see, and I think they they also focus more on the health of this overall interface rather than elevating one particular instrument that may not be that valuable or important to a position of primacy. And obviously, I think the other thing that that can't be overstated in the context of thinking about the U.S. experience as well as elsewhere, oh, I, I must have given it a virus, uh, is, is if you're thinking about the university industry interface and the economic repercussions of that, 
You also need to recognize the importance of non-university institutions in policy. Again, this is going back to the national innovation system concept. I mean, in, in the in the context of uh, I, I may explode soon here. I don't know. Anyway, this is my last bullet on my last slide. So uh, that may be what they're trying to tell me. Uh, you need to think about what else is out there outside the university and the role of policy, history, a range of other influences in affecting those non-university institutions. Obviously, in the U.S. context, venture capital, labor mobility, very important. And those are, again, very deeply sort of embedded pieces of the U.S. innovation system that don't always transplant easily. But they're very important in understanding the sort of role and history of, uh, of the U.S. Uh, university industry experience. So these are, I think, just uh, repeating what I've said earlier. You know, Baidol arguably has been of secondary importance. Some of the post-Baidol uh, patent policies may have been a friction as much as a lubricant to university industry interaction. And, and I think in particular that more than a Baidol policy alone, however attractive it it appears to the policymaker for whom it doesn't involve investing money or, or much of anything else in many cases, more than a Baidol policy alone really is necessary to try to encourage a, a, a fruitful uh, university inter industry interaction that yields the kinds of economic and intellectual and other uh, benefits that we all would like to see. So thank you. Thanks indeed, David, for this uh, fascinating insight into the complexity of this whole area. And I think to help us uh, get further insight, we're now going to have a question, a question and answer session, which will be uh, Frances Ryan will act as moderator. And I just want to very briefly introduce Frances. She's been director of the ESRI since December 2006, having previously worked for almost three decades in Trinity in the Department of Economics, and currently an honorary fellow there and honorary professor in the department there. Her research interests have been, over the years have been on Ireland's economic development, and she currently works on the research program in internationalization <coughs> and competitiveness at the Institute. She's been connected with policymaking in relation to higher education research and innovation over many years. For example, as a member of the National Board for Science and Technology in the 80s and the Board of Forfast more recently in the 90s. Currently a member of the HEA and the Health Research Board, and she's also a member of the Research Prioritization Group. Uh, led by Jim Mahara, which is due to report shortly. So she's eminently placed. I'm sure she'll maybe have comments or questions, uh, as I hope all of you will from David. Okay, Francis. Okay, can I just say how delighted I am that the, the Academy agreed to, to co-organize to co this, this lecture with us. I think we've had a lot of very good talks in the Academy over the years on the whole issue of, of science and the development between links between business and, and universities. I suppose one of the things that has characterized it has been mostly it's been scientists and engineers talking. And this was an opportunity actually of somebody from the, the economics house and persuasion who generally take a more jaundiced view and a more, a more uh, um, questioning view possibly than the people who are participants in the, in the exercise. So what I'd like to do is I have some comments and questions myself, but I'd like to actually start the process of giving other people a chance to talk and uh, ask questions. And I'll, I'll, uh, I'll take, take note of people as they, as they, as they ask questions. So, do you want to stand? Do you want to stand? Will you stand up? I sure. don't want to do it. Do you want to? Yeah. I, I can stand. Okay, she can stand. So that's why. Or, or, or duck, as the case may okay, be. Okay. Yes. So who would like to who'd like to begin the questioning? Say, so, um, uh, got Peter here first of all. Thank you. So I'm Peter Finch, I'm Vice President for Innovation in UCB here. So David, thank you for reading. Oh. 
I hope everyone could hear that. Thank you for a really uh, excellent talk. Uh, I think it's extremely useful for us because um, we haven't, the debate amongst economists here has been very limited, I think. Uh, there's a word you continue to use consistently throughout, which was system, and that it's a system, and it's very hard to look at one part of it and see uh, if that works or, or look at it in isolation, particularly when measuring things and measuring performance. So I think the, the, the point that you made about uh, secondly is the, the point of, of not looking at the value of R&D or public investment in R&D in terms of just patents, spin-outs, startup companies' licenses, that really the human capital element of what's being produced out of universities is going to be far, far more important, uh, albeit difficult to measure, again, that contribution and what actually results from the university and otherwise. Um, but uh, one thing, uh, there were two quick questions I wanted to ask you. One is, um, in the literature on the relationship between R&D and productivity generally, there's this uh, absorption idea that, that uh, you can't rely on uh, purely imported uh, know-how, essentially, if you want to be a leader in either technological, but particularly process innovation, that you need smart people, you need people uh, active. Um, so uh, one thing we've been particularly interested in in this country is that we have this large proportion of, of multinational companies. Uh, we have a very strong high-tech sector, but a constant criticism is, well, that's fine, they're great jobs, but what about everybody else? So I think the issue of diffusion of knowledge, you would expect in the Irish economy that our hospitality sector, uh, you know, our, our retailing sector would be extremely high-tech or very innovative. I'm not sure the evidence is actually there. So one of the challenges for government is getting that diffusion of knowledge. So do you, have you seen in your work, do universities, can universities play a role in that piece? Um, and the second question was in relation to, um, there's a, a conflict, again, sometimes this conflict you mentioned between, um, if you like, keeping the IP in the universities, maybe allowing spin-outs and, and new startups versus uh, connections to existing companies mm -hmm. and encouraging that. Mm -hmm. We have that a particular challenge here because we have very large multinational companies who might be interested in IP, but then again we're worried about being overly reliant upon them and not having a build-up of, of indigenous industry. Um, so there's a big focus here on medium-sized companies and, the, and, and trying to actually get maybe IP spinning out of multinational companies and when you talk to VCs in the US they see that as a great opportunity in Ireland to spin out of IP like they do in pharma, spin it out perhaps into universities. And I was wondering about the experience of that in the U.S. Thank you. Okay, that's, uh, yes, those are, those are interesting and challenging uh, uh, questions, I think. Uh, the, I think the, uh, uh, the, the SME issue is, uh, is an interesting and an important one. And again, I think it, it really, because uh, exactly as you say, there is this question of um, you need to know something in order, or you need to have some level of, of in-house technical expertise in order to really even pose an intelligible research question to someone at Trinity in, in engineering or in the, in the physical sciences, for example. So there is a, there's kind of an impedance problem there. Um, and I think in part this is an issue of more clearly trying to identify goals and, and understand that different kinds of institutions may be needed to address different kinds of challenges. I mean, you, you don't, I think the answer to, to the SME challenge is not to ask Trinity faculty who are operating at the scientific frontier to become experts in, in job shop consulting for small Irish firms. 
one one direction in which to uh, consider going. And, and of course, this again, this gets to how you evaluate what's going on and the like. But certainly, one direction uh, to consider is is developing hybrid institutions that that bridge this this gap. And here, the the challenge is one of finding the resources and you know uh, making this fit within the feasible scale of the Irish uh, Irish system. But I think that's I think. Uh, I don't. I don't have an easy answer to that, but I think it's. It, it really underscores this this need to think of either different tiers and and different goals associated with the inhabitants of different tiers within a broader system of knowledge creation within the Irish economy. Um, the issue of um, of spin-ins and MNCs is a very interesting one. I'm not. There's not a lot of spinning in from industry of IP. Uh, Spinning into university tech transfer offices, there are, I, I believe there are a few examples of that. Typically, not involving established firms, but I think this this issue, this issue of the role of MNCs in the Irish context in spawning new firms, is a very interesting one, very important one. And again, it may be one in which IP per se is of limited importance. You know, again, you go back to, as I was saying earlier, you know, Fairchild was a big. Uh, an important source of new firms in Silicon Valley. And there you had a, an infrastructure, or well, you, you were beginning to get an infrastructure when, when Fairchild was spinning out firms uh, in, the, uh, in the 60s and 70s. But this was not people walking out of the door with patents under their arms. This was, these were people who, were, uh, who had a product idea and were frustrated, couldn't get it started inside the firm, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that I think there's lots of potential for the, the spin-out from established firms. I think that's, again, a, a, an area where uh, institutions external to the university are going to play a very important role. But it's also an, uh, an area where the human capital and the supply of excellent human uh, scientists and engineers is going to be a very important mediating factor as well. But I think it's, it's extremely – I mean, some of that has, has been going on in the Irish context for a while. But, again, I think it's it, – it, the IP may not be the central element of this dynamic. It, 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 the, you know, the, the, the non-IP policies maybe, you know, I think, are likely to be far more important in a lot of this. Pharma is different, but, but I think particularly if you're talking about uh, the IT area, the IP is of secondary importance, and, and it can, I think it can be an important uh, uh, avenue of development. Okay, Ellen, just wait for the mic, actually. Um, thank you very much for your talk, Ellen Hazelcorn, um, Vice President of Research at Dublin Institute of Technology. I've read your stuff before, so thank you very much. Um, I have two slightly different questions, one from a, um, a higher education financing point of view, and it really comes and speaks to one of the points you've made about income and the difference between growth and net and this whole thing, but in an environment of public expenditure, public funding of institutions declining, and obviously more so in the United States, there's a big emphasis on, well, other sources. So governments then turn around and say, ah, technology transfer, this is where you're going to make a whole lot of money and make up that shortfall. So maybe you might speak to that experience. And um, I suspect I might know your answer, but nevertheless, mm -hmm. it would be useful to hear that because we're in such an environment. And you might then, just because the emphasis has been on science and engineers, um, on the S&T side, is you might speak to whether or not there are any issues or lessons to be learned um, for the arts humanities or social sciences in this space. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. oh.
Good questions. Good questions. Yeah. Well, yeah. To I mean, uh, I, I think this idea, which um, I think has faded to some extent among U.S. university administrators, that, that yeah, the licensing income can make a, can significantly offset declining public funding. I think that's fairly uh, fairly much out the window. Again, reflecting the fact that there's this concept of net income that's arguably far more important than gross income in thinking about these uh, about these issues. And obviously, the other the other element of the U.S. experience um, that deserves underscoring in this context, and I'll be very brief, is that you know the important fuel for this engine of knowledge and enterprise creation and all the rest of it was federal funding. You know, there was there was a lot of federal research funding. It's it's not as though uh, this was a, a, a nakedly capitalist undertaking. It was a heavily subsidized uh, undertaking. And, and the, of course, biomedical uh, more hev- heavily subsidized than almost any other field of uh, research in higher education over the last uh, 25, 30 years. The non-S&T area, uh, the, the non-S&E area, I should say, is a, is a very interesting one uh, because I think that is one that has been completely overlooked in, in the tech transfer uh, uh, literature, and I think it reflects uh, the fact that uh, you don't have as much formalized IP being generated. I mean, you do have IP being generated, and it's, it's all under copyright, and it's, you know, it's textbooks, and it's, uh, it's uh, uh, IP of that sort, and it's managed in a completely different way by universities. I mean, it's, it's typically not managed at all. You know, you... You don't have a, a monopolist uh, to whom faculty have to go to get copyrights uh, on their textbooks or something, or, or who is in charge of marketing their uh, written output. Um, and and ob- arguably, that that more competitive model could be applied in the area of, uh, of patenting and licensing. But I think I, I think the important thing, uh, perhaps one of the the potentials of moving away from a patent centric view of technology transfer is precisely by opening up uh, the field of vision to the full array of types of knowledge and the different ways in which different types of knowledge may both go to, go outside, go out of the university and come into the university that the arts and humanities can be brought back into the conversation. I think I mean I think the other issue that you have in running universities but this is not this is not new. Is that there's a tendency, precisely because of the obsession both with um, with industry-sponsored research and with licensing income, that the, the science and engineering faculty get this sort of, sort of all the attention. And of course, I think one of the key uh, tricks, or you know, the necessary subterfuges of a senior university administration or administrator is to manage some cross-subsidization underneath the veil because you know, universities are more than just uh, faculties of science and engineering and, and they're, they're, uh, you know, they, they, they are an entity that presumably the, uh, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts and you have to be able to, to do some cross-subsidization. And this has been a, a you know, challenge in U.S. universities going back to 1945 because of the avalanche of external uh, research funding that has tended to go to some departments and not at all to uh, to classics. And so you have to figure out ways of taxing one to support the other, and that's easier in good times than in bad, but uh, it's, 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 it's something you have to do, basically. Yeah. Okay, other questions? Uh, Brian, and then Brian, and Leo. 
Uh, Brian McCraw, president of DCU. We're, we're an in, a university that works very closely, I suppose, at the industry-academic interface. So that colors some of mm -hmm. my questions. Thank you for a fantastic presentation. I think you give a very nuanced analysis of some of the key issues that we're facing here. <clears throat> one, one major point I want to make with you, to my knowledge, no university in these, in these islands makes a net income from royalties and licensing income. Certainly none on this island that I'm aware of. Um, so I think that should influence how we behave in that regard. Um, one comment stroke question I'll put on, I know Graham is going to speak after me, is the role of the funding agencies in this regard because the metrics set by funding agencies which are important for refunding in particular are a, a major driver of behavior. Mm -hmm. So in that regard, like you said earlier on, in terms of you set it as licenses, you're going to get licenses. If you set it as spin-outs, you're going to get spin-outs. Yep. So. Okay. Um, two questions though. One is around <coughs> the, the nature of the innovation ecosystem that would be best suited to Ireland and it's the concept of the cluster. You talked about some of the examples of Fairchild and so on and having universities in, in the proximity of clusters of companies. What you might recommend in the Irish context in that regard. And secondly, a, a, it's a challenge stroke question around uh, driving behaviour in, in academia in terms of what I would call the innovation agenda. I still believe that you can have KPIs or metrics around innovation in terms of, a, I suppose, the growth transfer of knowledge rather than setting particular metrics around patents that can be beneficial in, in enhancing the, the contributions of universities to the innovation ecosystem. Okay. Um, yes. Uh, the, uh, um, the, the, the metrics issue is, 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 is challenging. Uh, I think that... Uh, and, and again, this is an area where I think uh, scale matters uh, because I, I think that uh, and I'm, I'm really the, I'm more familiar in some respects with the, uh, the UK exercise of uh, the research assessment exercise. And, and I think uh, that's an interesting exercise and an important one. Um, but it, in the context of a very centralized public funding scheme, it, it can, uh, you know, it can sort of... Uh, dictates uh, a lack of diversity uh, in research agendas, in research behavior and the like, that is, you know, is something that, on the one hand, you want to encourage excellence. On the other hand, you want to uh, nurture diversity as well. It's, uh, and, uh, and, and so I think there's, there's a real trade-off, or there's a potential trade-off there, because, again, you don't have multiple sources of public funding in many contexts, and you have a kind of a single... Uh, well, not a single, but a relatively narrowly defined uh, set of criteria for excellence. And there, you certainly have, I mean, in the U.S. context, you have all of, all of, almost all of the public of the federal research funding, of course, is awarded on a competitive basis. So there is some sense, and, and that definitely tends to squish out diversity. Uh, but there are non-federal and other sources of funding that do play, uh, that do play an important role. And so that, have in, uh, on various occasions played a very important role in, in maintaining some level of diversity, uh, supporting uh, you know research that everyone thought was crazy, for example, and things of that sort. And I don't have a, a, an easy answer for addressing that in the Irish context. You know, I think it's been perhaps carried to extremes in the UK context, and that's obviously a much a much larger system. But I think it, it's the kind of thing that one needs to recognize as a trade-off, and perhaps continually strive to sort of try to keep something on the side that uh, that can support the kind of diversity that ultimately can be of great value. 
beyond saying it's a worthy uh, aspiration, I, I, you know, I don't have bright ideas on how to make it, con- especially in an uh, era of uh, tight or declining public funding. It's a, it's a real challenge, but I think it needs to be recognized as a, an ex- a trade-off that's being made. Great love. David, hi. Graham Love from Science Foundation Ireland. People are going to think myself and Breen set this question up because it fits perfectly with what Breen just said a moment ago. Um, you said in your talk, and I heard Peter make mention of it as well, like one of the most important outputs is the, is the, is the knowledge transfer through people, the mm-hmm. contact sport, mm-hmm. both out of universities into industry and in reverse, though we talk less of that currently. Uh, I know in, in SFI, as one of the funders who sets a lot of these metrics, we're very conscious of this, and we do measure sort of uh, first destinations of people who leave the funded teams, that type of thing, but it's, I find it very difficult. We find it very difficult. So a very simple question. Have you seen anyone or anywhere measure this aspect of it well? And if, if so, what are the characteristics and traits on that type of metric that we should try to, to go back to one of your key messages earlier, emulate? Oh, good question. Good question. Uh, and a very fair question. Uh, to which I don't have a very uh, uh, well-developed answer. Um, and in particular, you're trying to get at, and I think legitimately trying to get at this sort of the, the full dimensions of this, uh, of this personnel flow, both from academia to industry and, and back, and perhaps even uh, the second position after, uh, after graduation or degree for the, the graduate. And uh, uh, it's very difficult to capture these data. Um, the U.S. doesn't do it any uh, significant degree. I think, as I say, one of the reasons to think about industry-funded research at universities is that in many cases, (laughs) industry-sponsored research is likely to uh, be open to this reverse flow or likely to encourage this reverse flow in the following uh, respect. You know, research fellows come in for a year into the lab that a given firm is, uh, is contributing to research within. So that's that may be a measure that would capture some of this, uh, the, the other other side of this ideally circular uh, flow uh, between uh, universities and industry. Um, but I think that the, that the U.S. National Science Foundation has tried, with varying degrees of success, to to uh, you know a sample, uh, do, do kind of a sample of graduates and follow them uh, as a cohort for 10 years or something, particularly with adva- with advanced degree uh, holders. And they've had, those data do exist. They're not easily accessible, but they are potentially an important uh, kind of a, uh, body of data that would allow you to start to track these things. If you, you wouldn't have to sample, you know, you sample a, a, some reasonable share of uh, uh, advanced degree recipients and try to track them over a 10 year period. Um, it's obviously, this is not a metric that can be used in near-term evaluation, but it's likely to be something that would be very uh, illuminating in terms of understanding the dynamics. For example, are, you know, under what circumstances are they going to the U.S. or the U.K.? Under what circumstances might they go and then come back? Uh, obviously a, a big issue in the, in the Irish context as well. So I think that's, a, that's an expensive kind of data to collect, but it's, it's potentially extremely valuable in terms of trying to get really get down to the level uh, of the, the flow of, uh, of people within and out of and back into both the academic and the broader uh, research system. And it gets at a lot of these linkage questions that loom very large in the context of, of innovation systems. So, you know, difficult, 
requires a contract probably with some uh, worthy university uh, faculty member, but, but potentially quite valuable. Hi, I'm Mihal O'Farlu from Waterford Institute of Technology. Um, thanks for a very interesting talk. It, it resonated a lot with me as a researcher involved in an ICT research center who's currently on secondment to a spin-out company. Um, so, but uh, I have uh, one comment and uh, one question. Uh, my comment is that, uh, in fact, in our area in ICT, often the IPR agreements are about copyright. They're about copyright of the software that's yeah. been transferred. Yeah. And in fact, it's quite important to develop strict policies internally that mean that that can be done cleanly, which is quite problematic, as I know from experience. My question is a very high-level uh, one. Um, it would be almost impossible to have this discussion about pure R&D without having made reference to the Frascati manual at some point in terms of defining terms and so on. And so I'm wondering why in a debate like this about the more innovation-led stuff that the Oslo manual doesn't get referred to more frequently, being nearly 20 years old now, and especially now when we come to talk about what are the metrics that we might actually measure and how well-defined are they and so on. So I was just wondering if you had a comment about that and how relevant it could be or might be or why not. Yeah, well, that's uh, yes. Well, uh, I don't mention the Oslo Manual uh, uh, in front of many audiences because very few of them have ever heard of it. Particularly, uh, I guess I'm more often speaking to economists, and they almost never have heard of it. So, uh, but yeah, I mean that's you know the Oslo Manual is an interesting place to go look and see whether there are. I think that uh, whether there are are uh, uh, metrics that could be uh, uh, developed and employed, it tends to. You know, it doesn't yield easy metrics or, or uh, metrics that are that, that map well onto the data that, that most uh, you know science foundations or uh, university uh, uh, financing agencies are collecting. But yeah, that's a that's I think that's a very uh, sensible suggestion in terms of thinking about better uh, me measures and metrics. Uh, the copyright issue is a very uh, yeah I've, I've, I when I've been speaking here about IP I've been speaking almost exclusively about patent. And copyright has been uh, has been tricky, even trickier, I think, for U.S. universities to manage. Not least because it really doesn't have, you don't have the kind of uh, political endorsement uh, for a university uh, assignment or licensing of copyrighted material, similar to what Bayh-Dole did for patents. And also, obviously, when you get into copyright, then you are really getting into uh, the area that the English department cares about a lot. Um, and so. You know, the University of California, for example, they basically have been tied in knots for most of the last 25 years over what to do about copyright. They've had a very hard time developing a, a policy uh, for managing copyrighted material. Stanford essentially decided by fiat that, you know, copyrighted material of this sort shall be uh, material that the University Technology Licensing Office can and will manage uh, and just sort of pushed that down on the faculty and managed to do so without an open revolt. But it's uh, quite, but of course it applies, their copyrighted material policy applies almost exclusively to software, obviously, not to books. And, uh, and that's the only way they, they could have gotten it through. But it, that one is, is very, very tricky uh, area to manage. Okay, question here on the right, and then either cross it down at the back. And see either. Um, thank you very much. Um, um, I'm Natasha Evers, um, lecturer in NUI Galway. Um, 
I just want to ask you to pick up on your point on experimentation of different TTO organizations. Um, my experience in the last year was I've come across three types of models which were non-internal, as opposed internal, i.e. embedded in the university. Right. And the external models were um, one, in Denmark, uh, one in Sweden, one in uh, KU Levan, uh, Katolic University in yep. Levan. And actually, the, just last week uh, in the University of Southern Denmark, there was a, well, it was kind of like semi-internal and external, but two of them were profit-making and the other one was non-profit-making. And the three of them worked quite well in terms of uh, the performance. Um, but I'd like to ask you, uh, David, have you any experience of the different variations of the TTO model in the U.S.? And if you have, you know, basically, are they more commercially productive or have they greater output than the internal models? Yeah, yeah. Um, the short answer is I, I, I have very little experience with them because I'm, I'm, I'm unaware of many uh, examples of, of, as I say, of uh, uh, an external entity managing uh, the patenting and licensing. Um, there is, there's been some, my understanding is there's been some experimentation in Canada with uh, uh, cross-institutional collaboration. But I haven't seen uh, management by external entities. I, I mean, there is this long-ago example in the United States of the research corporation, but they really faded uh, uh, out of existence, by and large, by the uh, 1970s. Uh, one reason was that they, that they, couldn't, they couldn't maintain enough expertise across the full array of... Uh, areas uh, of activity in which universities were, were approaching them for patenting and licensing. Another is that uh, MIT got into a big fight with the Research Corporation over licensing the original patents for computer memory that Jay Forrester developed, and uh, MIT was driving a very, uh, I beg your pardon, the Research Corporation was trying to maximize MIT's revenues from a small firm known as IBM, who complained bitterly to MIT and that Ended the relationship between the research corporation and uh, and MIT. So there's a there is a question um, of if you have an external entity managing this again, they need to have a, a very clear set of goals that you are asking them to attend to. And you know, maximizing licensing revenue may be good in the abstract until they're uh, stepping on the toes of a major institutional benefactor. But it, as I, I am continually amazed at the lack of an experimentation in the United States over this, and I think trying to learn from other uh, countries' experiments, and there are some now, is, is extremely important because there have got to be, I think, for, for smaller universities, uh, it would seem to be a no-brainer to experiment with different approaches where you, you collaborate on some functions and, and keep others uh, managed at the campus level. Ina Prosser. Ina Prosser. I'm with uh, Fountain Healthcare Partners at Life Science Venture Capital firm um, based in Ireland with offices in New York. Um, I would like to ask you um, to comment and maybe elaborate on two particular points that you raised, and I think it was very helpful. Uh, one was in relation to this, the third pillar, the innovation, the role of innovation contaminating the mission of teaching and some of your guidance about um, separation those two, separating those two mission statements. And sort of then, then just trying to get some further uh, discussion on how you see that um, fitting with a bi-directional model of people coming in and out of industry where those metrics are slightly different. So how do you come back in if there's no way of giving an attribution to, to what you've done 
when you are outside of the universities. That's one point. And more relevant to the biomedical space, and I would, I would agree with you, is um, our experience would be the U.S. system is quite evolved in terms of conflict of interest. It's often an issue of compliance rather than an, a, a lack of policies per se. And maybe you could um, give us some guidance on what are the core elements of an appropriate conflict of interest policy in some of those areas, or what are the big points we should consider? Thank you very much. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> well, I, when I when I talk, I I don't want to I don't want to leave the impression that I view innovation as contaminating uh, the other uh, uh, missions of the university. I mean, I think the the question is, do we want to create explicit? Or does do we in universities, as a matter of policy, want to create explicit incentives or policies for pursuing uh, uh, missions other than research and teaching? And I think in most cases, uh, I, I don't think it's necessary. I think that in most cases, uh, if, if you, faculty who are interested in pursuing entrepreneurial activity um, can and will do so, um, and, and they will do so both because of the perception of financial rewards and because of the perception of intrinsic uh, rewards associated with that activity. And I think, you know, on the one hand, you don't want to discourage them any more than, uh, than enforcement of the core missions the university uh, necessitate. But on the other hand, I don't think it's necessary to give them um, explicit uh, uh, incentives. Now, the, uh, as you say, there is a question of, okay, so the, for this reverse flow, if I'm being seconded uh, to the university from industry, for example, I think one of the reasons, again, to come back to this industry-supported model or industry-supported lab model is, in many cases, on a you, on, as a temporary assignee, as a seconded individual for one to two years, uh, that is certainly an area where, in consultation with the lab director or whatever, it seems to me, one can take a position coming from industry without being evaluated solely on one's publication record, for example. In many cases, the publication record may be there and may be significant. In other cases, it may not be, but uh, uh, this is a model where one can uh, uh, perhaps enable uh, the, the credential uh, obstacle that otherwise would loom large to be uh, at least worked around. But again, I think it has to be a, a matter of uh, agreement on those individuals. Now, conflict of interest, uh, now I am really talking in an area where I, in which I have no expertise. I, I, think, I think you're absolutely right that uh, there are a lot of policies uh, in the U.S. system intended to discourage this, and it's really enforcement of them that uh, has been uh, extremely difficult, because, partly because there's a great deal of money uh, and the channels through which that money may influence um, researcher behavior are poorly understood and in many cases not easily uh, detected by um, the would-be um, uh, enforcers of these conflict of interest things. So, I mean, I think that is something, as I said earlier, it, it's, it has to be sort of an area of continued effort with the recognition that there is no, there sort of is no end state. You're just going to have to keep working at it. Obviously, I think the key issues here involve the extent to which researcher Behavior is subject to influence by financial incentives associated with those of the of the sponsor or some other uh, uh, individual that, with a direct interest in the outcome. But translating that into policies that both uh, uh, can be articulated and enforced without you know, strangling the research enterprise under a mound of auditors and red tape, I think, remains a huge challenge. And, and there, 
you know, I mean, it's <clears throat> as in all of these areas, each successive dispute or scandal spawns a set of oversight requirements and or audit requirements and or forms that uh, must be uh, attended to for legitimate reasons. But they all they just continue to accumulate. And, and so I think it becomes a, it's a very difficult thing to manage, uh, in part because of the danger of strangling uh, the, the research enterprise in uh, in uh, bureaucratic red tape. While at the same time, when, has, when recognized, it's absolutely essential. I mean, you really, if people begin to perceive on a, a large-scale basis that the output of university research in certain fields is influenced by heavily by the sponsor, um, you've, you know, you, you begin to lose the legitimacy uh, that has been a very important, uh, I think, hallmark of uh, university research, certainly in the in the modern era. Could I ask two questions just before I, I think it was the last few that are out here. Um, in terms of the regulation of behaviours, do you think that that's best, or is there any evidence that that's best operated at an institutional level or at a, a more, if you like, system-wide mm -hmm. level? Mm -hmm. uh, because it obviously changes the, the balance. Yeah. Uh, my other question, which is the one that you haven't really touched on, since a lot of what we're talking about here is, is centred on people uh, engaging in certain kinds of activities and incentives towards that. To what extent is the, is the if you like, the British Isles academic contract uh, so very different to the US contract that really there's a whole, there's a whole story there that, 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 that in terms of emulation we right. really need to be more conscious of? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. Well, I think um, with respect to the first question, uh, I mean, I think one of the most powerful uh, instruments for trying to institutionalize compliance while recognizing it as a very imperfect one is at the professional level. I mean, to the extent that journals, for example, you know, require that you disclose all sources of financial support, to the extent that journals require that you make available deposits of materials and the like, um, that's an area where I, that, that potentially has enormous leverage, if you will, over the behavior of scientists who obviously aspire uh, above most other things to be published and to be published in the best journals. I think, um, I think uh, doing it at the institutional level is, is, is probably less desirable because then you, you, you run the risk of, of uh, policies that may not be consistent with one another across different institutions. And I think there's, there's, there's certainly plenty of uh, risk of that occurring in the U.S., uh, because now what you have is a, what you have in the U.S. now, uh, without necessarily uh, uh, enforcing the desired outcome, is a set of policies that operate at the level of journals, a set of policies that operate at the level of institutions, and a set of policies that operate at the level of the funding agencies. And while there is an, there is an effort to make them consistent, um, they're not fully uh, rationalized, and they're certainly not optimized, and they're generating just more and more uh, uh, red tape, basically. Uh, and that's, I think, so it, but it's, it's, it's a huge challenge. And again, it's a challenge primarily in the biomedical sphere, but not, not alone. Um, with respect to the, the nature of the contract, um, uh, I think, I mean, one of the interesting questions about the British model is, and, and or one of the interesting features about U.S. employment contracts in research universities, that is itself an interesting and important incentive uh, for collaboration and uh, this is one where I really may have to duck behind the podium. But anyway, um, as many of you probably know, U.S. academic contracts are nine-month contracts. And one of the important incentives 
for collaboration, for, for all kinds of external fundraising, much of which may involve collaboration with industry, is precisely the interest of faculty who are always interested in, almost always interested in uh, matters financial, of covering their otherwise uncompensated three months of summer. So summer money it has historically been an enormously influential incentive uh, over faculty both to seek uh, federal research funding on a competitive basis and also to seek collaboration with industry. And certainly <clears throat> one experiment worth considering um, uh, in the Irish uh, context uh, is, is, is experimenting with a, a nine or ten month contract that, that frees up all this valuable time during the summer during which one can uh, seek out uh, external sources of support. Uh, and this is where I probably have to duck. But anyway, I, I, I mean, I, I, this, this historically is a very important instrument and incentive for the kinds of collaboration that has evolved over, uh, over uh, the, the, the past century in the U.S. context. And, you know, I say, I mean, I, I don't even fully understand the origins of the nine-month contract in the U.S. system. It's fairly uniform uh, in public and private universities. But, uh, you know, it's sort of always been there. I don't know whether it came from uh, primary and secondary uh, teaching contracts or how it got there, but it's there. And like many other things in the U.S. system, this is something no one planned. It's something that's never been identified as a target of policy, but it's something that's been extremely powerful, I think, in uh, it really in driving this engine of uh, research entrepreneurship and collaboration with industry that applies both to, to research funding and to uh, uh, industry-university interaction. Okay, we're going to waste on time, so I want to take Hugh Brady here at the front, and there's a lady down at the back who's been trying to get into the beginning, so two last questions. You realize, David, that the headline tomorrow is... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, 30% uh, salary cut across the exactly. you, you, uh, you may not get out of the building and certainly out of the airport. Uh, that's why I was talking about ducking, yeah. yeah. Just, just a, a few quick comments on, on maybe res resonance, measurement, and experimentation in that order. I mean, I mean first, I think what you said, uh, certainly as president of University College Dublin, and I'm sure for my, my counterparts, some of whom are here, um, most of the institutions have moved to or are moving to uh, a portfolio approach in terms of the measurement of uh, the success or otherwise of, of university industry uh, collaborations. And I think importantly that goes and should go beyond um, the pre-commercial outputs, for example, but, but also extending into the student experience, whether that be internships, work placements, professional doctorates. Yeah. Um, there are, and, and all too often that size, side of the debate, um, which is part of that um, human capital piece is, is lost. Um, I think one of the, turning to measurement, one of the frustrations that we have to deal with uh, is that there is uh, a job of work for some of the agencies, although I must say uh, SFI have led the charge in this, and certainly government departments, to, to adopt a similar portfolio approach because all too often the measurements that are sought from government are based on this inappropriate understanding of a, of a supposed linear relationship between research output, licensing, patenting, etc. And of course, that's not the way it is. Um, so, you know, so there is a, there is a, um, a job for us, um, uh, I suppose, to improve that information flow um, uh, between the universities and government um, and indeed other funding agencies. Just on experimentation, though, going back to um, 
two interesting examples in, in this city. Uh, one is uh, UCD and Trinity have, um, uh, under the so-called Innovation Alliance, have two projects. One is actually on the issue of, of how you take two individual technology transfer operations, which are exactly as you described, and come up with a, with a better solution. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's taken longer than we thought because it's very, it's very difficult to find a better solution. Mm -hmm. um, but, but there are some interesting models out there, Imperial Innovations, for example, in the mm -hmm. UK being, being, being one. Mm -hmm. um, but moving again to the, to the student side of the equation, which I think is all too often forgotten in this, uh, in this equation, the other experimentation is, is uh, an initiative called the Innovation Academy, whereby all, for example, or at least in, in the case of UC Trinity, there are 200 PhD students only this September, who in addition to their disciplinary training, uh, take time out uh, to participate in the activities of the Innovation Academy. Right. And the idea is to ultimately, I mean, it's a catchphrase, but to try and, uh, and, and, and um, move them from being job uh, takers to being job creators, so that at least you're, try you're trying to increase the innovation uh, and entrepreneurial potential of, of a very high potential group of students in their own mm -hmm. right, and ultimately having looked at that pilot to move that down to the master's and undergraduate experience. The, the, the final thing I suppose to bring those together is, is there are many economists in the rooms and, and you made some interesting, you both yourself and Francis made some comment, comments on economists, but we have an interesting actually laboratory here, uh, Ireland as, as a very interesting laboratory. Uh, I can say as a physician scientist it always kind of um, puzzles us as to why there aren't more uh, prospective studies coming out of, of e economics, uh, you know, re research institutes or, or schools. And here, here is a very interesting one, actually, um, because if you take, uh, you know, the various comments that, for example, Graham and others made, there, there is, a, there is an, an interesting experiment to do to prospectively look at um, interventions, whether it be the Innovation Academy or whether it be other government policy interventions, uh, and to, to start prospectively studying these. And I think if there's one thing that strikes me as a as an amateur economist, physician, scientist, university president, God knows what I am at this stage, is the need for such prospective studies right. because all too often it's either cross-sectional or indeed retrospective. The equivalent of clinical trials. Exactly, yeah. And, yeah. and poor ones at that. Exactly, yeah. yeah. No, I think that's a very good idea. And that, I think one of the challenges from the policy perspective is precisely that that requires moderately expensive data collection with a fairly long fruition. You know, by the time you are able to start tapping into the results, what, three to five years at least. And, and that's, that's often hard to uh, incorporate into the policymaking uh, 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 cycle. But I think that's a very, uh, I mean, that's a good way to, to conceptualize it. And I think your, your emphasis on the, 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 um, the student experience is one that I, uh, I have obviously downplayed rather dramatically, but that's obviously a, another very important set of policy tools with which to kind of enrich and improve the permeability of this university industry interface, and one that in many respects can reach down into the SMEs in some cases as well, particularly if you're going down into the master's level students and the like. Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah. the final yeah. question yeah, at the end here. Very, very good comment. Thanks, Francis. Uh, Mary Gillick from Enterprise Ireland. Um, I just wanted to bring you back to one of the slides that you had earlier and just to get some insight into the, um, the open innovation arrangement that you mentioned that some, 
a selection of the very larger universities in the US had with four IT companies. <laughs> and really to kind of understand, is it working? And what are the kind of key salient features of that? Because it, it's also relevant to the point that you made about experimenting on a TT model and institutions collaborating together. Yes, uh, no, that's a, a good question. Uh, the, the underlying principles of the open collaboration uh, uh, partnership and the like are to uh, really try to simplify uh, the negotiations over intellectual property associated with industry sponsorship of academic research. And uh, I think <clears throat> this, this has a couple of features and one very large risk. Um, the, the, the key features, I think, are to try, are basically for people to back off of the assumption that every piece of intellectual property coming out of this collaboration is going to be potentially of enormous value, and therefore we have to define background and foreground intellectual property, you know, just spend months with attorneys in the room and the like. Um, so the, uh, the, the typical features are if it's industry-sponsored, then the sponsor has a, is, has a right of first refusal or even potentially an option on a license uh, low uh, or no royalty license, uh, non-exclusive basis to the re resulting IP. Um, where this could blow up in everyone's face is that you're, and 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 this is you know this is becoming widespread. I think it's the the, the sentiment behind it is very sensible and, and very uh, well intentioned. Where it can explode is particularly where you have. Um, where you do have a, a piece of very valuable intellectual property coming out of a lab that is funded by multiple sponsors, uh, either multiple industrial sponsors or, where it could get really complicated, a federal uh, research agency and an industrial sponsor, um, and, and, and particularly where it's very valuable and you're in a public university, then you, you, you create some challenges uh, lest you as a licensing officer or a university president or vice chancellor being accused of sort of letting, letting this industrial firm walk off with this very valuable intellectual property, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it has not been kind of fully tested against that kind of a challenge, and that may never come up. Uh, nevertheless, that is one risk associated with this. Is it, you may have a situation in which you have sort of blue dollars and red dollars and green dollars depending on the public or private nature of the sponsor, or uh, if you have multiple industrial sponsors, potentially you get into a sticky wicket there, although I think uh, in IT you can probably work out a cross-license that, that would work around that, but, but uh, federal and, and, and industrial sponsorship, there's at least some risk of, of uh, more complexity. But that's, those are the basic principles associated with it is, is essentially uh, industry sponsorship of research implies a somewhat different treatment of the uh, intellectual property. Well, I want to uh, draw this uh, discussion to a close. Um, my colleague, Julia Zichlag, who uh, leads the innovation research at the SRI, uh, was at a conference uh, sometime earlier this year and saw David speak. And we were thinking about it was a good time to actually have a, an open discussion with an economist leading, has the habit of looking at things like costs and benefits uh, on, on, on this particular topic. And she assured me that he would give a great talk. And I'm glad to say that he did give a great talk. And I'd like to thank him very much. Mm. And the Academy has kindly invited us for reception outside uh, just immediately afterwards. So thank you all very much for coming. And David, thank you very much. Thanks for your attention and questions. <laughs>